Welcome back to Season 2 of Living in the 60s. I'm Craig. Tom is here with me. Tom, what a great way we have to kick off our Season 2 of our podcast. We are with one of the top recording artists during the 60s who has had 23 gold records, 9 platinum albums, over 100 million records sold worldwide, 32 Billboard's Hot 100 chart hits, He's still touring. <laughs> he is the author of a book called Me, the Mob, the Music. He's going to have a movie, and he has his own show on Sirius XM Channel 73, 60s Gold, on Sunday nights, called Getting Together with Tommy James. Here is the amazing Tommy James. Tommy, welcome to Living in the 60s Podcast. Well, thank you so much. It's great talking with you. Say, Tommy, uh, your story comes out of Niles, Michigan, with the success of Hanky Panky, signing with Roulette Records, and the stories behind one of of your really hits, amazing hits. Uh, could you share with us some of those memories and, and some of those things? I know there's a story about working with Hubert Humphrey, for our Minnesota State Senator, and then went on to become VP for Lyndon Johnson, and then went on the campaign for president. And since we do live in Minnesota, I know our listeners will love to hear your experience working with Vice President Humphrey. But first, could you sure. tell us about your story with the big hit, Hanky Panky? Sure. Well, Hanky Panky, of course, uh, was my first record, our first record, and uh, first hit record. And um, uh, it was recorded back in my hometown of Niles, Michigan, back in 1964 uh, in a radio studio. Uh, WNIL in Niles, in the city of Niles. And um, it was released uh, on a little label that the uh, one of the disc jockeys was putting together. And it was, uh, uh, you know, a local hit in 1964, but, you know, it didn't go nationally because we had no distribution. And uh, so I kind of forgot about the, the record. We went on to other things. And I graduated from high school in 65. And I took my band on the road, and we were playing throughout the Midwest, uh, doing clubs in the Midwest. And um, uh, in early 1966, I was working sort of a dumpy little club in Janesville, Wisconsin. <laughs> and uh, right in the middle of uh, my two weeks, the uh, uh, club was shut down by the IRS because the guy didn't pay his taxes. It's oh, oh. a true story. I'm sorry to get long-winded, but I just no, no. wanted to give you the whole, the it's, whole picture. It's good stuff. And so we went home. That, that's, that's how God works, though, because we went home feeling like losers. And as soon as I got home, I got the call that changed my life. Um, it seems that this record that I had done two years earlier um, had been bootlegged in Pittsburgh, played uh, on the radio, and was number one. Uh, they sold 80,000 bootleg copies oh. uh, in Pittsburgh in 10 days, and we were sitting at number one. <laughs> so they, they tracked me, only in America. Right. So uh, they, they tracked me down, and I just happened to be home, thank God, at that perfect moment, and got the call. Uh, if I, if, if the guy hadn't have been, had, had his club shut down, you and I wouldn't be talking today. <laughs> so, um, anyway, uh, they tracked me down. I went to Pittsburgh and, and sure enough, the record is number one. I did local TV and newspapers and radio stations and everything. And, uh, I put a new group of Shondells together because the old group, uh, couple of them were drafted and it was just impossible to get everybody back together so uh, I picked I created a new group of Shondells from a local band uh, got a new manager and a week later we went to New York to sell the master to a major label so we get to New York and um, uh, this is pretty well covered in the book but we get to New York and um, we get a yes from everybody. Everybody wanted Hanky Panky. It was just incredible. We got a yes from Columbia, RCA, um, Atlantic, um, Kamasutra Records, and, and all the hot labels that, uh, of the day. 
And so I went to bed that night thinking everything was great. And the next morning, um, we started getting calls about nine in the morning from all the labels that had said yes uh, the day before. Now say, listen, uh, we got a pass. And I said, what do you mean you got a pass? I thought we had a deal. And finally, Jerry Wexler up at Atlantic tells us the truth that the, uh, Roulette Rec- the head of Roulette Records, which we were one of the labels we took the record to, Morris Levy, uh, called him on. You know, it was it was rumored around that he was that Roulette was sort of a mob mob label, and um, uh, he scared all the other labels. Uh, he he told him. He says when he, Jerry told me when he talked to us, he says, this is my record, back <laughs> off. And that's just the way he talked, too. So um, uh, we were apparently going to be on roulette. And it was the first offer I couldn't refuse. So <laughs> at any rate, um, we, uh, we were going to be on roulette, and that's how we ended up on roulette records. But they took the record uh, to number one everywhere in the free world and um it ended hanky panky ended up being nationally the biggest uh the biggest record of 19 of the summer of 66 so we were very i was very thankful for that but that's how my career ended up on roulette phenomenal story just phenomenal sorry to be so long-winded no but that's I, the whole story i think it's great i think it's great your head must have been spinning you were how old I had just turned 19. Oh, wow. I could barely tie my shoes at 19. <laughs> hey, um, you know, after you had some, some hits, obviously, after that one, but um, I Think We're Alone Now was a big one for yeah. you. How did that song come about? Well, I Think We're Alone Now was our fourth hit record in a row. And... Um, uh, our fourth gold record. And I had uh, uh, become friends with and was being produced by that time by Bo Gentry and Richie Cordell. And Bo came to me uh, with this song called I Think We're Alone Now, and it was basically a, a ballad. Not, not real slow, but I mean, it was a sort of a mid-tempo ballad. And... Uh, he played it for me, and, and I loved it. It was, you know, you could, as soon as he played the, the, the hook, uh, I, the chorus, I, I, I no doubt in my mind that was a hit record. And so we went in the studio with it and uh, um, recorded it. Uh, we start, we, you know, I, I, I said, we got to speed this thing up. And I played guitar on, on the demo. And I, that's where we started the uh, the eighth notes with the doom, 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 doom. And um, so Bo sang the lead, and we, we loved the demo we came out with and took it back to Roulette. Morris flipped over it, <laughs> and we went back in the studio and recorded it. Uh, and I did the, uh, uh, the, the lead vocal on christmas eve of 1966 and what a great christmas present that was wow wow for wow. sure say you have a great story behind the uh, money money and how you how'd you uh, come up how'd you come up with that name well money money just started out as a track a music track and uh we uh, we my uh, had it in mind to put a party rock song together sort of like the old uh Gary U.S. Bonds records or mm. uh, Mitch Ryder records, uh, sort of, you know, in 19, this was 1968, by the way. And uh, uh, so all, everything we were doing was sort of a throwback to the early 60s. Mm-hmm. And, but I just wanted to put, you know, something just loud, raucous rock and roll together. Mm. Um, a party rock, I guess you'd call it. And so we played with this track, and for the next, oh, I don't know, four or six weeks maybe, uh, we're, we're moving things around and, and, you know, editing this out and putting this in. And, and uh, so uh, 
Richie Cordell, my songwriting partner, and I were, were writing the lyrics. And um, we had all the lyrics to the song except for the title. And we're up in my apartment in Manhattan the night before I'm supposed to do the lead vocal. And, you know, we're trying to come up with a two-syllable girl's name, you know, like a Sloopy or Boney Maroney or something, <laughs> you know, something. And everything we were we came up with just sounded so dumb. So we just sort of threw our guitars down, went out of my terrace and lit up a cigarette and we're looking up into the nighttime sky and the first thing uh, our eyes fall on is the Mutual of New York Insurance Company sign. Oh. top of the building, you know, with the with the dollar sign in the middle of the O and, and it gave you the time and the weather and and we're just looking at this thing and it just, we just start laughing because we both looked at it at the same time and it was Moni, was the perfect, M-O-N-Y, Moni was the perfect <laughs> girl's name, perfect title. And, uh, you know, it was like God said, here's the title. <laughs> <laughs> and I've often said if we'd have been looking in the other direction, we were so desperate for a title that the song might have been called Equitable or <laughs> Met Life, maybe, right. or something. We were we were really hard up for a time, but that was so perfect, and of course that ended up being the title of the song. Wow. Now, that was, story. Your, that was your first eight-track, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so, 1968. <laughs> wow. Also, uh, Billy Idol went to number one with that song, and Tiffany yes, had the number one with I Think We're well, Alone. Tiffany and Billy Idol released now and Moni Moni cover uh, you know at the same moment wow and they and this is in 87 and it, they both went up the charts like they were holding hands oh. one one right behind the other and they both ended up going number one back to back wow first time that had ever happened before phenomenal and uh, that was in uh summer and fall of 19 I guess the fall of 1987 and so uh, uh, you know we've been so lucky because we've had over 300 cover versions of our songs done by so many different kinds of artists you know Prince did Crimson and Clover and so did Joan Jett and um, uh, oh God, R.E.M. did Dragon the Line and I think we're alone now was done by a whole bunch of people. And so we've been really very, very lucky because uh, all these new songs have been in movies and they've been in commercials and so forth. So, you know, it keeps the music alive and on the radio. Yeah, it's great. You know, I heard you say um, that the song Crimson and Clover was probably the most important song next to Hanky Panky for you. Can you tell us why? Yeah, next to Hanky Panky, it, Crimson Clover really was because it, well, it started the first, the second half of our career. But Crimson and Clover, um, you know, we were we were out on the road with Hubert Humphrey during the presidential campaign of '68, and while we were out on the road doing the campaign. Um, the music business turned inside out. Um, when we left in August uh, on the campaign, uh, the biggest groups were oh, the Rascals and uh, I guess the Association and Gary Puckett and uh, oh, I'm leaving a whole bunch of people out, but uh, oh, Mitch Ryder. Um, and you know, I'm, I am leaving a whole lot of people out, but the point was it was all singles and 90 days later when we got back, it was all albums. Hmm. It wow. was, uh, Led Zeppelin, Crosby, Stills and Nash, Blood, Sweat and Tears, uh, uh, Neil Young, Joe Cocker. It was all LPs. And in that 90 days, uh, everything changed in the music business. 
in the record business. And there was this mass extinction of singles acts. And we knew that if we didn't start selling albums, that our career could be over. And because uh, up until that time, we had been basically a, a top 40 pop radio act. And so we just happened to be working on a little song called Crimson and Clover at that very moment. Wow. And Crimson and Clover, um, with Crimson and Clover, we started selling massive amounts of albums. And I don't think there's any record I ever made that would have allowed us to make that move from AM Top 40 pop radio to FM uh, uh, rock-oriented progressive rock. I don't think any song we ever put out would have allowed us to make that move in in one shot like that. Crimson and Clover did that for us. Wow. And And it gave us the second half of our career. Can you circle back for a minute Talk about Hubert Humphrey, sure. Hubert Humphrey, because you know he's our he was our state senator here in Minnesota. You know Hubert Humphrey wrote the liner notes on the album, The Crimson and Clover. <laughs> no. That's wild. First time that had ever happened. Yeah, well, you know, Hubert. This was. I don't want to get too long winded with this story either, but basically, what happens is 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 in the spring of. Um, uh, 68, um, we were asked by the Democratic Party to do a a uh, rally in southern Manhattan. And a whole lot of the candidates that were running for president in, at that moment were going to be there. Eugene McCarthy and oh, even uh, John Lindsay, the mayor of New York, was mm-hmm. running for president. And several other candidates, and so we agreed to do it. And we and we we did it, and as a result, we got put on some kind of list. And the next time we were called was, you know, a couple of months later, and we were asked if we would come to California and do uh, Robert Kennedy's uh, play at the California primary headquarters. And we had to turn it down um, because we were playing that night in, of, of all places, Dallas, Texas. Hmm. And so we, we played what was called the World Teen Fair in Dallas, Texas. And I wanted to go past the next day on the airport. I wanted to go past where President Kennedy had been assassinated down at Daly Plaza and so we went there and it was really creepy and it was very it was amazing to me how tiny an area that is you know you you see it on TV you're used to thinking of it as being a, a large area it's not it's tiny yeah and so we, we were kind of there until the police kind of chased us away and went home that night and of course we were supposed to be with uh, Robert Kennedy's uh, rally at the primary in California, and we had to turn it down. So, uh, because we were playing that night, and so I go back home and I turn, I go in the house and I, I sort of had the creeps anyway, you know, from being at the Kennedy assassination spot, and I turn on the TV just in time to hear the reporter saying there's been a shooting at Kennedy headquarters. Mm-hmm. Wow. And of course, that's when Robert Kennedy was killed. And I mean, I just went into a funk for, oh, I don't know, two, three weeks. I was just, the whole thing just really blew me away. I was a big, I was a big Kennedy fan. Mm. And um, all of a sudden we get a call from Hubert Humphrey's office up at Roulette. And they called and told me about it, that uh, Hubert Humphrey's office had called and asked, 
they knew he was going to be, this was by this time, uh, the convention was going to happen in a, in a, in a week or so. And they knew that Hubert Humphrey was going to be nominated. He was the vice president. He was going to run for president and they knew he was going to be nominated. So we were asked if we would come out and play in, I think it was Wheeling, West Virginia. I remember everything I did in 1968. I can't tell you what I did on Tuesday. That's <laughs> so, um, at any rate, so we uh, said yes, of course. And uh, so we played at that rally in West Virginia where he started his campaign. He was nominated. Remember all the, all the uh, people got beat up at the Democratic convention that year. And the whole thing was such a mess. And Hubert Humphrey didn't get on until almost two in the morning, given his acceptance speech. And so the following week, we were going to, and of course, we're watching all this and we're saying, what the hell have we got ourselves involved in? Uh, is every rally going to be like this? Yeah. And with people getting beat up and stuff. And so we didn't know what we were getting into. So anyway, we met him. Uh, in West Virginia and we played in an airplane hangar and it was just mobbed and reporters and and uh, fans of his and uh, he had me sit we played uh, for about 20 minutes I guess and then he wanted me to sit next to his wife Muriel and uh, we sat you know up on the Yes, I guess you'd call it. Um, and while he gave his speech, and we met him, and he what a sweetheart! I mean, what a great, great man he was. Yeah, he was, yeah. And uh, he was just so good to us. And that night, he asked. We played three different places. There was like these puddle jumpers we would play, and we'd set up and play three different times, and he asked us that night if we could do the campaign with him. Wow. And that's phenomenal. He said, you know, he, he said, whenever he, I said, you know, we we're, we're contracted for some concert dates, so we may not be able to play. Him. He says, well, and he gave us the democratic party, gave us our own private jet hmm. from, uh, 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 out at LaGuardia. I can't remember the name of the outfit that, you know, it was a Learjet. Uh, to go back and forth whenever we would have to get back to go do a concert. And uh, Butler Aviation, I just, <laughs> Butler <laughs> Aviation. Yeah. So um, at any rate, we did that. We ended up doing the whole campaign. And he told us stuff that nobody knew. He told us, you know, how he was going to end the Vietnam War and how he was going to, uh, you know, save... 30,000 American kids and and he was going to do it with a national referendum and you know I, I couldn't believe we were hearing this you know because you know this is stuff that you know is on network news only they didn't know it yet only persons that knew it was us so at any rate um, the night of the election they had the uh, uh, election headquarters at the Lemington Hotel in Minneapolis and what a night that was and I'll never forget uh, he was just starting to pull ahead a little bit and he, at five o'clock in the morning and everybody went went to you know he went he went up to his room and uh, all of a sudden I don't know if you're old enough to remember but all of a sudden the uh, uh, the TV uh, coverage suddenly came to a halt because uh, something had happened with the computers and uh, the election coverage had stopped. Uh, the, the computers counting the votes. And um, suddenly, about an hour and a half later, it came back online and Nixon had won. And everybody thought that Daley swung the election in Chicago because... Mm. Uh, he had been uh, 
yeah. demonized uh, during the, because uh, he sent the cops to beat up all the kids at the convention. So everybody thought that this was payback. Mm. Wow. And so um, uh, Hubert lost. Mm. Mm. And uh, we were just all kind of sick about it. And I remember at, uh, we all had breakfast together the next morning and he said, because everybody wanted him to do a recount, he wouldn't do it. He said, no, the country's been through enough. And uh, uh, he says, you better keep your eye on this fellow because he, he has a tendency to get himself in big trouble. Meaning Nixon. <laughs> wow. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, that was how we left it. And we stayed friends. He wrote the liner notes to the Crimson and Clover album. He did commercials for us. Mm. We were coming in about a month later into Minneapolis and doing the, the uh, big hall there, the big uh, arena. And uh, uh, f uh, for the radio station. And he did commercials for us. Wow. What an amazing guy. Wow. That is amazing. First story. time a rock and roll and, and a politician had <laughs> ever right. hooked up like that. Wow. Thank you and, for uh, sharing that. Isn't that an amazing story? It really is. And, yeah. you know, we we grew up here, so we know Hubert Humphrey and Muriel. And Sure. Yeah. It, it's just, thank you so much for yeah. sharing that. That is a great story. Yeah. Yeah. See, uh, he, he wrote me letters and... and uh, we we stayed in contact until he died, and oh, I was wow. that's wonderful. Uh, so oh, honored. What a friendship! Say, uh, can you tell yeah. us a little bit about the special significance to the song "Sweet Cherry Wine"? Sure. Well, "Sweet Cherry Wine." Yes. Um, I was a Christian. I am a Christian, and uh, that was "Sweet Cherry Wine" was the blood of Jesus. Wow. Real simple. And, you know, back then, um, you know, there was no such thing as political correctness. We did, I wrote songs and made records about things that were on my mind. Wow. Oh, that's wonderful. That's fantastic. Oh, I love it. Um, I love Crystal Blue Persuasion. And I know uh -huh. you had said there were numerous versions recorded. Right. So why were there so many versions done? And which one did you end up with? Well, actually, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the the several versions was on Crimson and Clover. We got three okay. different versions of Crimson and Clover before we decided on one. But with Crystal Blue, I was doing a concert down in Atlanta at a college in 69, early 69. And at the end of the show, we would do meet and greet and sign autographs and stuff. And this nerdy, nerdy kid, college kid, came up with you know thick, uh, <laughs> thick glasses, and he said, and he's carrying his piece of paper. He said, Tommy, listen, I wrote a song. I wrote, I wrote a poem. He says, for you. He says, you got to read it. Okay, just take it with you. So I said, okay, and I took it with me, I put it in my pocket, and I got it back to the hotel, and I started looking at it, we were doing a little writing session, and I looked at this thing, it was called Crystal Persuasion. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's an interesting combination of words. I, I, you know, as a songwriter, you're always looking for interesting titles, interesting word combinations. And Crystal Persuasion, I don't know, it was kind of visual and and very different. And we started, it was a, it was about the book of Revelation and, and the Bible. Hmm. That's what he wrote about. You're kidding. Wow. No. About like chapter 19 or 20 where they're talking about uh, the uh, Lake of Crystal. And so it was... Um, you know that's the mood it was that was generated by the by the poem, and so we started writing a song called Crystal Persuasion, and we we needed an extra syllable to make the rhythm work, so we we threw in the word blue, <laughs> Crystal Blue Persuasion. But we we didn't write his poem; we wrote something like it. Um, 
you know, a song about becoming a Christian. And uh, that's what Crystal Blue Persuasion was. And um, I, so I, all I can say is we, we, we wrote it and, and went in the studio. Eddie Gray came up with the flamenco guitar part and Mike Vale and I wrote the lyrics. And um, we took it in the studio the, the following week and, and played with it. And, but we completely overproduced it. It was, ended up being one of the hardest records I ever made because we just completely overproduced it. Too many guitars, too, you know, too many uh, keyboards and a full set of drums and everything. We looked at each other when we were done with the track. We said, this isn't the song we were. And so we started pulling things out and uh, it took us over a month to really get it the way we wanted it. And uh, uh, finally, we, we took out all the drums. All we left in was like a bongo. And we took out the guitars except one rhythm guitar and the flamenco guitar that Eddie played. And a uh, little, little organ, trickling organ. And we had to completely gut the song to make it right. We had to let it breathe, and it became sort of a, a Latin feel, kind of open. And uh, uh, we took it back to Roulette, and again, Morris Levy just loved it. And that was going to be the next single. And so that's how it came about. This, it was wow. a very strange way to make a record, but uh, uh, that's how Crystal Blue came about. Yeah, what a what a beautiful record, though. Now that we know behind the scenes, I mean, no wonder it turned out so beautiful. It, it's thank in, you very in, much. And such a great message. It, right, it's just wonderful. Say so your song "Dragging the Line" was was fantastic. Yeah. I get the thing in my mind all the time. "Dragging the Line," it was terrific. Uh, what was uh, there were they came along with the uh, strategy of the ten to twelve seconds strategy. What what was that? The, uh, well, Dragon the Line was uh, also made in a strange way. We actually uh, recorded the track before we wrote the song. Mm, okay. And, uh, you know, we, we had the boom, 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 boom. Just this that sort of hypnotic feel. I threw a little <laughs> right. uh, tape, tape reverb on the bass, and it just had this sort of an elastic kind of a, a feel to it. And it was hypnotic. And so we wrote the, did the track and uh, the music to it before, the music track before we wrote the song. And then we wrote the song on top of the track. It's usually the other way around. Usually you're writing the song and before you go in the studio and put the music down to it. So we just wrote it in reverse. And uh, um, it, it ended up being, the, it, it was the B side. We put it out originally. Uh, I did. I had. I was doing solo work by that time, and um, I, I it, we put it out originally as a as the flip side of a record called Church Street Soul Revival, which was the A side. And this was kind of a. And when we started, we put the record out. And we started getting more play on the flip side than we did on the A side. Hmm. <laughs> Wow. And that had never happened to me before. And so I took a second look at it, went back in the studio, and we threw on the horns and remixed it uh, with more emphasis on the, on the, on the bass and the drums and, um, and, the, and the horns and put it out then as a, as, as a single on its own and went number one. <laughs> went wow. number one for us so that was one time I had it backwards <laughs> sometimes that works in your in your favor you're right absolutely yeah hey in your book me the mob and the music you mentioned something called hip pocket records they're miniature yes. miniature 45s by Philco what what were they right. for well Philco was putting out a, a little record player. Up until that time, you know, before eight tracks, the 
you didn't you couldn't take your music with you anywhere right you know okay. you were nailed to wherever your record player was right and so uh Philco had the idea of making uh putting out a little record player, battery-operated record player that you could take anywhere. Huh. And... Oh, no idea. Little, yeah. little disc-shaped, little plastic discs. I mean, when I say plastic, I mean real plastic, you know, like, like, uh, um, you know, almost like cellophane. Wow. And, uh, uh, little, little records, little, uh, recordings that you could play on this little record player and they were called hip pocket records and they came in a cool little package but they they stopped doing it after about oh i don't know probably after about six months they just quit doing it and uh eight tracks kind of came out by that time okay and so that was a much better way of keeping your music portable so we had several of our records, though, done uh, as hip pocket records, and they're real collector's items, if you could find them. Say, uh, Tommy, uh, Craig and I absolutely love your book. Um, in, my, in our opinion, this book is so honest. It's to the point. <laughs> no punches are pulled at all. And, and well, thank for, you. For us, that's one of the problems with doing an autobiography. Is you got to <laughs> tell on yourself. You got to <laughs> tell the truth. That's right. It's a true version of the '60s. It really is. It's it's fantastic. Say, oh, tell us about uh, how you decided to write the book, and then uh, and then that's me, the mob, and the music, and uh, sure. you have an idea on how it was going with with Roulette Records. What? How, how yeah. was that journey? Well, first, first of all, uh, uh, the book. Um, uh, well, let me just lay this on you because uh, the the book itself was uh, was written by uh, myself and Martin Fitzpatrick, my my co-author, who is also our road manager. Mm. Martin passed on a couple of years ago. I'm sorry to say, and. Uh, uh, I miss him terribly, but he was he was one of my best friends. And uh, so we sat down literally at my kitchen table and wrote this thing, banged this out. People had been after me for a long time uh, to write about my experiences and stuff. And we were originally going to call the book Crimson and Clover. And we were going to write about the hits and we were going to write about making, making music in the studio and so forth. It would have been an interesting book. But we realized early on, we got about a third of the way into it, and realized that if we don't tell the roulette story, mm-hmm. which really is the story, that we were cheating ourselves and everybody else. The reason that roulette was such a story is because unbeknownst to us, um, when we signed with roulette in 66, Roulette, in addition to being a, a decent little label, independent label, was also a front for the Genovese crime family in New York. <laughs> and of course, we didn't know any of that. And um, so we we realized that that really was the story <clears throat> that we needed to tell because that was the dr- dramatic part of the whole thing. But some of these guys were still walking around. And I was very nervous about finishing the book. So we sort of put it on a shelf for a couple of years. And then finally, um, the last of the roulette regulars, as I called them, passed away and and died. And and, uh, I felt like we could write the book, that it was safe to write it. So, um, we did, that's what we did. We sat down and really wrote a a very honest, um, appraisal of what Mm -hmm. the whole scene was like for us. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's such an odd thing because roulette, I don't know if we would have had the success we had anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Because 
if we had gone with one of the corporate labels like Atlantic or Columbia or one of the outfits we could have gone with, I can tell you right now, especially with a fluky record like Hanky Panky, <laughs> we would have been lucky to have been a one-hit wonder. Oh, wow. yeah. Um, we would have immediately have been turned over to some in-house A&R guy who would have who was doing other acts as well. Yeah, we, the competition would have been terrible. And uh, uh, we, we, we would have been lucky to have any more than just the one record. So uh, at Roulette, they actually needed us. You know, they hadn't had a hit in three years. And they really rolled out the red carpet and uh, let me be in charge of everything. And I learned, I learned everything. I learned songwriting. I learned record production. I, le- I was an on-the-job trainee. That would have never happened anywhere else. Right. And so I was very fortunate to learn the record business and learn my craft um, in such a, an upfront way. Of course, getting paid was another story. You know, crime doesn't pay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We found that out. And so we constantly had to, you know, make a decision. You know, do we stay here and try to... Because we were having such great success record-wise with Roulette. Do we hang in there or do we try to leave? Because it was dangerous to try to leave. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because we were their main moneymaker. It was... They let us know we weren't going anywhere. <laughs> wow, wow. And so, um, I guess you could say it was a, a deal with the devil. We, we, in one way, it was the best, and in, in, the, in another way, it was the worst. So anyway, I guess that makes for a good book and a good story, and it'll make for a good movie. Oh, I can hardly wait. <laughs> 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 Rock and roll and the mob, oh. that's a pretty good combination. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's fantastic. I, I know you mentioned that you're in like 65 films. Your songs are featured in 65 films, 53, right. 53 TV right. shows, numerous commercials. And you've been covered by, you mentioned uh, Prince, Bruce Springsteen, Joan Jett. Billy Idol, Kelly Clarkson, R.E.M., Carlos Santana, Cher, Tom Jones, and even the Boston Pops. It's an amazing list. Um, yeah, they did Money Money. <laughs> I'm sitting there listening. I'm, I'm eating at a restaurant, and I hear you know violins and everything, and all of a sudden I hear you know uh, finger plucking the strings on violins going. Plink, 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 plink. I'm going, geez, I reckon, what is that? And I said, holy, they're doing moany, moany, my God. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Wow. So, you know, when you were first traveling back in the 60s, who were some of the groups that you appeared with at the start? And then were there any favorites that you had when you were traveling? Well, yeah, I mean, we... we we performed with everybody. We were doing a lot of shows with uh, Mamas and Papas and Blood, Sweat and Tears and, uh, oh God, mm. uh, just everybody. I think the grassroots you know, too, right? Huh? The, gra- the grassroots? The grassroots? Were they? Did you- grassroots, yes, big time. Yeah. Grassroots, and uh, we became very good friends with the grassroots. Um, you know, we lost Rob Grill a few years ago. I, I miss the guy a lot. That's one of my favorite. So many. Groups. I can't believe how many of the uh, the uh, big acts uh, have died, and uh, or just for health reasons aren't working anymore. Now you it's getting pretty sparse out there. Oh yeah. You you know you continue to perform uh, concerts throughout currently, and uh, yeah. What what are the audiences like when you sing these uh, your past oh, hits? Oh yeah, I, I look out at our concert crowd, <laughs> and I literally see literally see three generations of people. Wow! It's 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 just an amazing thing to see, and they all they don't necessarily know each other, but they all know the music, mm-hmm. and so it is really uh, a wonderful thing, 
And I'm, I'm amazed that we're still doing this like we are. We're playing all over North America this year. And uh, I don't like leaving the country, to be perfectly honest with you. I've done it a couple of times. But I'd much rather play in North America, the U.S. and Canada, than anywhere else. And uh, I've been so blessed, because I can't believe we're doing this 57 years. (laughs) That's amazing. And that's in the major leagues. I was doing it several years in the minor leagues before that. So, is the movie? Uh, tell us about the movie. What, what's well? What's the it? movie is going to be a, a, a film of the book, and uh, Barbara Defina is producing it. Barbara produced Goodfellas and uh, Casino and Hugo a couple of years ago with Martin Scorsese, and oh, wow. uh, just a string of great movies and. Um, uh, Kathleen Marshall is directing and uh, Matthew Stone did the screenplay did a great job of the screenplay and uh, uh, it's you know they're, they're casting now Hollywood was shut down for about th- almost three years because of COVID mm-hmm. and so now they're up and running again and uh, uh, things are coming together so uh, they're casting now. Uh, they've pretty much got the technical crew together. and uh, uh, That's a whole other thing because that's so difficult because uh, these technical people, you know, the camera operators and the sound guys and the, uh, the film editors, they're, they're all stars in their own right. And it's really, a, really amazing watching this come together because everybody has to be available at the same time and all these guys are working on other films and stuff so it's really quite a challenge Uh, Barbara Defina as the producer really has quite a a challenge on her hand getting everybody available at the same moment but she did it do you have a preference on who plays Tommy (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Walter Brennan. No, I, 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 uh, you know, this is one time everybody asked me that, and I, uh, these casting directors are so hip. They know who all the young actors are. The only thing I'll say is that I'm amazed. They haven't chosen one yet. The, the two, they've chosen a lot of the uh, uh, other cast members, but... Uh, Morris Levy and me mm-hmm. are the two main characters in the film. The head of Roulette Records yeah. and myself. And it was such a weird relationship. It was almost, it was like an abusive father-son relationship, you know. Uh, you know, the dad beats the kid around and but he sends him to college. Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. Right. And I, and I, but it's it's a, a very human kind of guttural relationship because Morris Levy was every bit of thug. And, uh, um, you know, I'm this hick from the Midwest coming together and making it work. You know, Morris was maybe the most fascinating person I ever met in my life. because in addition to being this very, he could be this very dark character, but he also was brilliant at uh, uh, business, at the, at, at the record business, and at um, as a record man. He could hear hits. And so it's this strange uh, dance between two very different people. And so uh, picking Morris has got to be, and yet he was very scary. The guy was six foot three, 280 pounds, 70 pounds, 80 pounds, and was a a big guy, big scary guy that talked like this. (laughs) But yet he was uh, an artist. Hmm. You know, so it's very weird. 
And then, of course, I'm dancing all around all this, trying to figure out while I'm moany moaning and hanky panky, you know, there's this very dark, sinister story going on behind us that we couldn't talk about. Yeah. Phenomenal. So we finally got it out. And so the, um, I guess, you know, I'm going to have to let the casting directors, uh, the grown ups, figure out who the best people are to play these roles. Uh, I will say, though, that I'm, I'm amazed how many of the young actors uh, started out uh, in rock bands. Mm. It's really quite amazing. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the actors that first got on stage by playing in, in local rock bands. And so a lot of them already know how to play guitar and sing. I think... Uh, um, you know, they really raised the bar in the movie Ray. What's the guy, Jamie Foxx? Right, right. Yeah. Really raised the bar because he's, he sang his own music. He sounded like Ray Charles he ended up right. looking like him. Right, wow. I mean, it was incredible as an actor what he pulled, put himself through. And so he really has raised the bar. So there's no lip syncing and there's no nothing phony it's got to be somebody who can really do it so it's going to be an interesting couple of years watching all this come together we will look forward to seeing that tommy congratulations on a fantastic career and on behalf of all your fans thank you so much for the musical memories that you've given us and tom and i want to thank thank you. you so much and the next time we're in your area don't be a stranger well, we thank you. We won't. And uh, we thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to appear on Living in the 60s. Listeners, remember, you've got to go to TommyJames.com to see upcoming tour dates. You can also order the book, Me, the Mob, the Music. We're all over social media, Facebook and Fantastic. Twitter and everything. So. And make sure you listen to Getting Together with Tommy James on Sirius XM channel 73, 60s Gold. It's on Sundays from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Tommy, thanks again for being on Living in the 60s. Thank you so much. It's been great talking with you. You're just great. And uh, by the way, thanks to our listeners. Uh, Make sure that you tell us on the listeners uh, how you like the interview with Tommy by emailing us at living in the 60s at myyahoo.com that's living in the 60s at myyahoo.com until next time rock on thank you so much tommy that, that one you're very 